0: All right, we come now in our worship of God together to the preaching of his word. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2, Deuteronomy chapter 2. This morning I'm I'm more aware than uh, most mornings, I'm paying the price for not dressing warmer, I'm not wearing flannel like Ryan, and I'm not wearing the dress coat like uh, Greg, so I'm paying the price this morning and if if I wasn't concerned about us being tag charismatic or Pentecostal I would ask everybody to take a lap around the sanctuary this morning um, before we hear God's word but we won't we won't do that Um, but if you need to stand up and move around you're certainly welcome to do that let's pray this morning and let's ask for ask for God's help Father, we come to you again today in the name of Jesus. And Lord, thank you that we can. Thank you that we can come. And Lord, we come to bless you today for your word. And we thank you for what you have caused your word to mean to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have made your word precious to us. And that in the new covenant that you have written it on our very hearts. And Lord, we pray today that you would address us by your word. That you would speak to us by your word. God, we ask that you would search us today by your holy, pure word. And Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would make us like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. All right, let's begin our time this morning reading God's word together. Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 25 together this morning hear God's word then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea as the Lord told me and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir then the Lord said to me you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough turn northward and command the people You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession." You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you and all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, Away from the Arabah road, from Elath to ezion and we went, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, "Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given heir to the people of Lot for a possession." The Emem formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they were counted as Rephium, but the Moabites called them Emem. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them." Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. And so we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. Until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at air, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession." It is also counted as a land of Rephium. Rephium formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim who live in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim who came from Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Our prayer is that you hear it by the help of the Holy Spirit I can remember significant moments in my life some of them even when I was a teenager like they were yesterday I can recall them and I have no doubt that that same principle is true for you significant moments mark us and these are the ones that we carry with us all the days of our life And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, it's easy to miss this on the surface of reading this text, but a significant moment happens in the history of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Context reminds us that the people of God are in the land of Moab on the very outskirts of the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. For 38 years, the people of God had heard God say, go southward, away from the promised land. But all of a sudden, God gives a word in verse 3 of our text, and he says, turn northward. Turn northward. And friends, I want you to know this morning, that was a generation-shaping moment. That was a new beginning for the people of God that was the most significant redemptive historical event that had happened in 40 years in Israel. God said, go northward. In verse 1, we are told that Israel spends many days in the wilderness. That many days is 38 years as defined in our passage. Now, As you study the Pentateuch, especially Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you find out there are three major travel narratives that God gives us regarding Israel's journeys. The first is from, he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai. The second is they leave Mount Sinai and they go to this place called Kadesh Barnea. And that's where they send the spies into the promised land, and they don't believe God, and God judges the nation. And then you have the third travel narrative, where God brings his people from Kadesh Barnea to the land of Moab. And that's what Moses is recounting as he's preaching to the nation in the land of Moab, in the book of Deuteronomy, is that third travel narrative of Israel's journey out from under God's judgment and on the move now toward the promised land, turn northward, God says in verse 3, finally, finally the nation is on the move. In fact, I want to title the sermon this morning, Israel on the move. That's what Moses is reminding us of this morning. If you're a note taker, uh, you, could, you could take down these three headings this morning as we move through this text. Israel's restraint God's sovereignty, and God's faithfulness. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, this new beginning is marked in this chapter with three commands to cross over important geographic boundaries. The first one is in verse 13. Uh, The Lord says, through the mouth of Moses, he tells the people of Israel, go over the brook Zered. The second is in verse 17. He tells the people, cross the border of Moab. And then the final is in verse 24. He tells the people of Israel, go over the valley of the Arnon. Now this is one of those chapters where these maps in the back of our Bible, save your bacon. You flip over there and you can find out, man, where is that brook Zered? Where is that border of Moab? Where is that valley of Arnon? And as you do that, you'll find out that as Israel crosses each of these three boundaries, it's marking that they are getting closer and closer to their entry point into the promised land. The nation is getting closer and closer to inheriting The promise of God. But it is worth asking in this chapter why the change? Why the new beginning? Why the sudden reversal of Israel wandering in the wilderness under the judgment of God and now they are finally making their way to the promised land? Verses 14 and 15 tell us very clearly what God has been doing for the past 38 years. Now one of the interesting things about this wilderness season in Israel is we all, we know almost nothing historically that happens after Israel refuses to enter the promised Land, okay and and until God sends them uh, through Mo, through uh, Edom and through Moab right before uh, their entry into, Uh, The promised land. We know almost nothing of that period of time. But verse 14 tells us that God has been working these past 38 years. And Moses tells us that God's judgment has been faithfully falling day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. On the unbelieving men in this first generation. Look at it again, verse 14. Verse 14, and from the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they perished. Now in Numbers chapter 1, we have a census in Israel. And they actually counted up the number of warriors, the number of men of war. And so I want to give you that number so you get a sense of the scope of God's judgment that has fallen upon this nation. In Numbers chapter 1 verse 46, the total number of the men of war in the first generation of Israel... Number 603,550 men of war. That's how many bodies have fallen in the wilderness. Why? Because of sin, because of unbelief, because of rebellion against God. Day by day, the hand of God was stretched out in judgment upon this nation. That was chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. But now the storm of judgment is past and we have this new beginning, this new history in Israel with a new generation. And one of the questions that we have as readers is, is history going to repeat itself? Are they going to go the same way that their fathers went? And one of the things we see as Moses preaches to the nation in this book, that he begins to contrast... The disobedience of the first generation, that's Deuteronomy 1, with the obedience of the second generation in chapter 2. And you see this in how Israel responds to the word of God in the mouth of Moses. In verse 3, God says, turn northward. And then in verse 8, what do they do? And we turned and we went. God said, Israel did. Same thing you see in verse 13. God says, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. In other words, they know a little bit of a taste of what it's like to disobey Yahweh, the word of the Lord. They saw these bodies strewn out in the wilderness. And now we have a picture of Israel heeding the word of God. Israel obeying the word of God. And so the journey away from the promised land was marked by disobedience to the Lord. But this journey towards the promised land is marked by Israel's obedience. God said and they did. And I want you to see that even in the way that their journey to Moab unfolded, God is teaching obedience to His people. And so I want you to see something surprising in this passage. At the very end, in verse 24, we see a command from God. He tells Israel to get ready to go to war. To take up arms. It's time to fight. He says it this way. Rise up and set out on your journey. Go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold... I have given into your hand Sihon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. And so this is a journey of obedience. Israel is going to have to obey God. they got to learn how to fight when God says fight. But the surprising thing in this passage is in the same chapter... Prior to the command to go to war, three times God says to this nation to do not fight. Do not harass them. Do not enter into conflict with them. Three different people groups. You see the first one in verse 5. Regarding the Edomites, the people of Esau, God says this. Do not contend with them. Happens again in verse 9, this time to the Moabites. Moses says, do not harass Moab and do not contend with them in battle. And you see it again in verse 19 regarding the Ammonites. Do not harass them or contend with them. And so I want you to see that. This is God's word to God. Deuteronomy is our book. And in the same chapter, God tells us people to go to war and don't go to war. Now, Now, one of the things that this clarifies is some of the mockers of the Bible love to try to frame Israel's conquest of Canaan, the holy war that Israel takes up, In the name of the Lord, as this brutal license that God gave Israel to kill whoever they wanted. That's what kind of God you serve, Christians. That's the mocker. But chapter 2 shows us that Israel was bound to the Word of God. They did not have a license to kill whoever they wanted. They had to go to war by the Word of God, and they had to refrain from war by God the word of God. This is another lesson in obedience as they journey towards the promised land. By the word of Yahweh, they must both make war and by the word of Yahweh, they must show restraint. Whatever God says, God's people do. That's the lesson in Deuteronomy 2. Now, think about this their fathers, the first generation, failed in exactly this test. In other words, uh, Moses has already recounted this, the first generation refused to go to war when God said fight. They didn't go into Canaan. They refused to do it. And then after they disobey and God judges them, they go to war when they don't have any command from God to go to war. And God judges them for that. First generation failed in exactly this area. And you see that failure in the last two paragraphs of chapter 1. And so what God is doing is he's testing the second generation. Are they going to be like the first generation? Or will they fight when God says fight? And will they restrain when God says restrain? And this is what's happening in this chapter. God is requiring, teaching this new generation, to live by His Word, under His Word, submitted to His Word, yielded to His Word. And this is always what God requires of His people. Obey my Word. Keep my Commandments In this covenant relationship with God, it's very clear from beginning to end who the Lord is and who the servant is. God is Lord. He is king. We are his servants. And the Bible tells us that God intends to rule his people by his word. This is the scepter of our king. The, the Bible is his scepter in his hand. And we submit to his word. You know, that was the whole point of the tree of knowledge that God planted in the Garden of Eden. To test Adam, will he live by the Word of God? Or will he live by his own thoughts, his own ideas, his own common sense? Will the man submit to his king? And he failed that test. First generation of Israel failed that test. God is putting that same test to this generation. God tests that principle in every generation. This is still what God requires from his people. Will we obey his word? And so God required restraint from this second generation. We'll talk about war next week as we get into that that next passage with uh, Sihon, but what I want you to see here is that this restraint is not an easy thing. It's not like, uh, man, that was so easy for them you know, to do that. Godly restraint is never like that. And so one of the things that you, can, that you can pick up from the book of Numbers, which is a fuller history of these same events than the concise summary that Moses is given in chapter 2, as you, can, you can see that their journey northward as they leave the wilderness, go through Edom, go through uh, Moab, have this encounter with the Ammonites, every single step was difficult for them. Nothing was easy. Every single step, they were opposed, they were ridiculed, they were provoked every step of the way. Numbers 20, for example tells us that when Israel sent messengers to Edom to request passage through this land uh, with terms of peace, we don't want war with anybody, we just want to go through the king's highway through this land and we'll give money to buy water uh, and sustenance for the nation. The king of Edom says, no, you won't. You won't be going through our land. And Numbers 20 tells us not only that, he comes out in in the midst of the wilderness with a great army to oppose Israel. So he's ready to strike down the people of God and God says, don't hit them back. Be very careful. Do not contend with them in battle. That's not an easy thing. That's not an easy thing. Same thing happens with the Moabites. Three chapters... Of the book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, 24, is this narrative of Israel peacefully passing through the land of Moab and this wicked king hiring a false prophet to bring a curse upon the nation. That ever happened to you? You come in terms of peace, and, and instead of blessing, you receive curse from your enemies. That's what happened in this narrative. And yet, what does God say? Israel comes in terms of peace, Moab tries to bring a curse on them, and God says, don't hit them back. Do not contend with them in battle. And it's not because they're scared. You're about to find out that this generation is ready for war. They are ready to obey God. That's what the whole book of Joshua is about to show us. They're going to take possession of the land that God has promised them. But here we see God restraining the nation. Do not contend with them in battle. And we learn a principle here. God is more interested in Israel's obedience than he is in Israel's military ability. I hope you know that. Men of God, I hope you know that. God is more interested in your obedience than your fading physical strength. It's a principle all throughout God's word. In fact, the Bible says it this way. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's what God's word says. What, what's first on God's uh, metric, his value system? Mighty warriors, powerful warriors... No, he says those who are slow to anger, those who rule their spirit, that, 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 that's the leaders in the true Israel, men of restraint. And listen, this is always true, that when God sanctifies a person, one of the things that he always works into his people is godly restraint. This is one of the distinctive marks of real, authentic, true Christianity that the people of God, when they are struck, they don't hit back. They don't take vengeance. They are ruled by the Word, not ruled by their emotions, their first instincts. They're ruled by Scripture. Deuteronomy 2 reminds us of two things, and we're covering the first this week. Every servant of God needs to know when to fight, and you need to know when to restrain yourself. You need to know when God would have you to take a stand, and when God would have you to restrain yourself and trust in Him. You need to know that as the people of God. Of God. And God knows that this restraint goes against every bit of our flesh. This is not easy stuff, which is why, in Deuteronomy 2, verse 4, God says this: be very careful. When you go into Edom, Israel. Be very careful in how you respond to my word. The Hebrew word here is the word shamar. The word that calls the people of God to watchfulness and carefulness. The idea here is that this word reminds us that we cannot trust our first impulse to react to a situation. It reminds us to pray for God's help. God, I want to be a man or a woman who's ruled by your word. Lord Jesus, rule my spirit right now. Restrain me. Restrain my anger. Restrain my flesh. That's, that's what we're called to in verse 4. Be very careful to obey your God. I want to remind us that no one ever lived out this principle of godly restraint like the Lord Jesus Christ. No one Listen to what Peter says about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. He says, when, when he, Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, we know Jesus didn't restrain himself out of weakness or out of fear. He was a fearless man, the strongest man that ever lived, a sinless man. Jesus restrained himself because he was ruled by the Word of God. And so I want you to ask yourself today, when is the last time that I lived out godly restraint? When is the last time, real life situation, real live ammo, okay? When somebody hit me and I didn't lash right back and lay into them. When is the last time that my spirit was ruled by the word of my God? When is the last time that I put a muzzle over my mouth? When is the last time that I submitted to My King. reason I want you to ask that question is we're trying to search out this morning, Lord, am I a doer of your word or am I a hearer only? We don't want to be hearers only of knowing the commandments of God. The commandments of God are given to the people of God that we would obey them. And God expects that when his word restrains us, we yield to him. We obey our king. This is the word of God to the church in Romans 12, verses 18 and 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now this sin... The sin of a lack of restraint. God causes people to godly restraint. If we don't hear them and we lack this restraint, if it goes unchecked in the church or in the Christian life, you could refer to this person as the Christian brawler, okay? Which is an oxymoron. That's not a compliment, right? Um, the Christian brawler, describing the centurious person who's always ready to verbally strike over any doctrinal matter, any cultural matter, any personal matter. At the drop of a hat, they're ready to fight. The Christian brawler. I want to share this story with you from Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He recounts an incident where Martin Lloyd-Jones rebuked a fellow pastor who had begun his ministry preaching the gospel and then turned Into a centurious, contentious culture warrior. He told the man in this conversation that more is needed to feed Christ's sheep than making mincemeat of liberal theology and liberal ideas. And as needed as that is to tear down what isn't right, the people of God need more than that. They need their souls encouraged, they need the gospel. Listen to what martin lloyd jones says he says dr shields you used to be known as the canadian spurgeon and you were you were an outstanding man in intellect in preaching gift in every other respect but in the early 20s you suddenly changed and became denunciatory i feel it has ruined your ministry why don't you come back Drop all of this and preach the gospel to the people and win them to Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that courageous opposition to the culture is needed at times, but it is no sure mark of godliness. Real godliness knows when to fight, but also knows when to restrain itself, constrained by the word of God. Deuteronomy 2 reminds us that you have to know when to fight and when God would have you restrain yourself. And brothers and sisters, this is a virtue that ought to work itself out daily, weekly, monthly, yearly in the Christian life that we are muzzled men and women. We don't, we don't just, we're not raw. We don't just say what we think about everything. We are muzzled. We are controlled and governed and submitted to the word of our king. He is king. We are His servants. So three times in our passage, the people of God are commanded not to make war with the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And notice that all three times in Deuteronomy 2, that the ground for the commandment don't make war because God appeals to a land gift That he has given these nations. And that's an interesting thing. God's distributing land not just to Israel but to other people groups in Deuteronomy 2. talk about that in a minute. But but I want you to see this. He says three times, I have given. The Lord says that. I have given, verse 5, Mount Seir to Esau. That's God's land gift to the Edomites. He says it again. I have given, verse 9, heir to Lot. That's the land gift to the Moabites. says it again in verse 19, I have given Ammon to Lot. That's the land gift to the Ammonites. These are their possession. And one of the interesting things in these three scenarios, Moabites, Edomites, Ammonites, is their connection back to Esau and Lot. God said something to Esau, God said something to Lot in Genesis 13 and Genesis 27 that he's honoring now in Deuteronomy chapter 2. That the word of God to these men is now being fulfilled. And really you can trace those promises that God made to Lot and that God made to Esau. They're not really for Lot's sake or for Esau's sake, they're because these men were connected to who? That's right, Abraham. They're both connected to Abraham. They're blessed because they're connected to Abraham. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want you to see that this land gift to nations besides Israel, beyond Israel, it teaches us some important theology about God. God is sovereign. Okay, God is sovereign. Now, I want you to think about how we use that word in you know our generation we we speak today of sovereign states or sovereign countries and what we mean when we say that is that you know they're a sovereign state they're a law to themselves you know we we don't have um political authority in uh name the country In, in mexico they're a sovereign state In other words, they have a chain of command, and once it reaches the top in Mexico, there's not another country that rules over them. They're a law to themselves. They're a sovereign state. Now, obviously, God rules over them, but when we say that God is sovereign, that's one of the things that we're communicating about God. There's nothing above Him. There's no no appeal to a greater authority than God. God is king. God rules the whole world. He's not just a tribal god in Israel and then Moab has their god that's kind of like Israel's god. He's king of every nation. He is lord of all. He's sovereign. And you see that in this passage where Moses is recounting the geography of this region and the political history of this region. In fact, in the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, there's two parenthetical statements in this paragraph, one is verses ten through twelve; the other is verse twenty through twenty-three. Those are both bracketed in the ESV by paragraphs. And one of the interesting things that that happens in these parenthetical statements is they both mention that before these people groups inhabited this area—the Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites—Moses tells us that that there was this prehistoric giant like race of human beings that he refers to the collective term here is the rephium okay and then there's several names that each of the people groups mentioned they but they call them this they call them this but they're the rephium Moabites call them the emim the Ammonites call them the zamzumim the Israelites call them the anakim uh, and you see, you see the reference to this, um, the previous inhabitants. And the theological point that's being made here is look what God did to them. They, 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 were, they were in this land, and what did God do? God dispossessed them. God removed them from this area. And so in verse 21 of chapter 2, We are told that the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. That's what God did. They used to be there. They're not there anymore. Why? Because God removed them from this land. And this should have been a great encouragement to Israel because that's why they feared going into Canaan. The Anakim are there. And one of the things Moses is preaching to the nation is just like the Lord removed these giants by the hand of Moab and the Ammonites. God is going to remove these giants from Canaan by your hand. The Lord is the one who dispossessed the peoples from this region. So he's not just Israel's God. He's the one moving around territories and peoples before Israel ever gets to this area. And by the way, one of the principles that we see play out in the Bible is that when God gives land to a people, he gives that land until he doesn't anymore. In other words, the principle is God gives the land, but that land can be forfeited by disobedience. And we see this all throughout the Bible. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. God gave the land to Adam. Adam seeded that land through his disobedience to God. One of the things that God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, when he gives the covenant to Abraham, as he says, this is not going to happen right now, this this curious phrase in Genesis 15, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the Amorites are in Canaan right now, but they're filling up sin, and when that sin is completed, then they're going to be purged from the land. That same principle happens with this land gift to the Edomites and the Moabites, And the Ammonites, and eventually the Israelites, God gave them a land until he didn't anymore because they disobeyed God. They were removed from their regions. And so this shows God's sovereignty. He is the king. He owns the whole world. And it's his prerogative to give the territory to whomever he wills. God is sovereign. The last thing I want to point out in this passage this morning is God's faithfulness. And we see this in at least three different ways in Deuteronomy 2. First, I want you to see that God is faithful in this passage to his word of judgment to destroy the unbelievers of the first generation. Now that's a curious thing because when we think God is faithful, we automatically think good stuff. God is faithful to do the good stuff, okay? And that's certainly true, but I want us to remember this morning, God is faithful to his word. When God says it, God will do it. He will see it out, okay? And we see that, that God renders judgment on this first generation, and for 38 years, the hand of God is stretched out in judgment upon Israel. Verse 15 reminds us that every one of these unbelievers were, they perished in the wilderness under the hand of God's judgment. Several times the Bible uses this first generation, the the unbelieving generation, as a negative example for us. Negative example in the sense of don't do what they did. See what happened? to this first generation of Israel, don't do what they did. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10. These things were written as examples to us, Paul says. But this, this appeal is also made in the book of Jude. It's an appeal to this first generation. Listen to Jude 5. He says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Excuse me, Jude, who'd you say did that? Jude, clarifying here, Jesus did that. Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. It's one of the incredible light that the New Testament throws back on the old that when that when God was leading the people by the pillar of fire and the cloud and the glory cloud in the wilderness, Jesus was doing that. Jesus saved the people out of you mean the carpenter's son? yeah the carpenter's son the Lord Jesus He saved the people out of Egypt and that same Jesus Jude said destroyed those who did not. Believe, And so I want you this morning to remember this about Jesus, to know this about Jesus. Jesus saves and Jesus judges. And He's faithful to do both of those things. Jesus saves and Jesus judges according to His Word. So one of the ways that we should respond when we hear about God's dealing with this first generation is we should fear God's judgment And we should trust God's promises. We should fear God's judgment. Jesus destroyed those who believe. And we should trust God's promises. He saved them out of Egypt. So first we see God's faithfulness to his word of judgment. Second, we see God's faithfulness to Abraham in this passage. Long after Abraham had died. I mean, this was... You know, back in the book of Genesis, Abraham dies. Now we're uh, the last book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 2, and God's still being faithful to Abraham. I want you to consider this this morning. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, what did they do to deserve being passed over by Israel? Understand the question. There's about to be holy war that's going to break out in Canaan, and God's going to give the command, nobody survives. okay A lot of people groups in that category. What did the Ammonites, the Edomites, and the Moabites do that they wouldn't be in this group? And the answer to that question is absolutely nothing. They were undeserving of the kindness that God showed them, When the people of God passed them by and God required restraint. And one of the things we're told in this passage is that God showed them kindness. Why did he do that? Not because they deserved it. He did it because of their connection to Abraham. And the Bible actually tells us that God will deal with all nations on the basis of their posture to Abraham. Genesis 12 says it this way. God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then God says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there's a picture here. And I want you to see it. That the mercy that is shown to Edom, Moab, and Ammon for Abraham's sake is a foreshadowing of the blessing of the gospel. God is going to deal with the whole world on the basis of how we are related or connected to Abraham. One of the ways, you know, you could say this in different ways, you need to be saved, friend. You need your sins forgiven. You, 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 you don't want to perish under God's judgment. You want to have God's blessing. One of the ways that the Bible says this is you need to be linked to Abraham. You need to find out how you g- go from being outside a relationship with Abraham to being inside, counted among Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, because the blessing flows through Abraham to all the nations of the earth. That's the promise in Genesis 12, verse 3. And here's the picture. Just like these nations didn't deserve to be spared, but they were spared because of a physical connection to Abraham, those who trust in Jesus, we don't deserve to be spared of God's judgment, but we will be spared if we have a spiritual connection to Abraham, namely if we are counted as Abraham's seed. This is one of Paul's arguments in Galatians chapter 3. How do you become Abraham's seed? He says it this way Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 If you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So one of the ways that God's judgment is averted is flee into the promises that God made to Abraham. His sworn oath that he gave for a thousand generations. These are promises of the gospel foreshadowed in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Finally... I want to mention one more thing. I, want you, I don't want you to miss this one. God's faithfulness to provide for Israel in the wilderness. Let's read it again, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years... The Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. Again, there's a lot that we don't know about the history of the people of God in this particular period. There's a lot we wish we know that we don't know, but we know this. God was faithful to his people. God provided for his people in the wilderness. The Bible says he blessed them in the wilderness. His hand was with them in the wilderness. And Moses said they lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. And so church, I want to close this morning by reminding us, the people of God, we are cared for by God. God cares for his people. None of us. Now, now, what that doesn't mean is, oh, God cares for his people, so none of us ever go into the wilderness. Nope, it's not what that means, okay? Being cared for God, by God doesn't mean you will never suffer. It's something sweeter than that. It means that every time you suffer and whatever you suffer, God is with you in that suffering. God provides for his people even in the wilderness. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for that? That God is with us in the hardest seasons of our life and the deepest pits that we will ever be in. God is with his people. You know, one of the things uh, that verse 7 says, and this is so, it ought to encourage us this morning, is he, is he says this He knows you're going through this great wilderness. One of the things you should thank God for this afternoon, sometime this week. God, thank you that you know. God, thank you that you know all of my struggles, all of my pain. You know, one of the things that's so difficult uh, uh, about suffering, even frustrating about suffering, is so many times those around you, they don't know. You wish they knew. That's part of the frustration is, I wish you knew how hard this stuff was for me. You can't communicate it. They can't see it all. One of the things that you should thank God for is He knows you're going through this great wilderness. You can take heart in this as a Christian. You can take heart in this that God knows your way. That none of your difficulties escape His watchful, His loving eye. And not only does He know, verse 7, the Bible reminds us this morning that he is with us. He is with us. And he blesses his people in the wilderness. And one of the testimonies that every Christian's going to have at the end of our life is when it's all said and done, we lack nothing. Uh, uh, Psalm 23 says it this way. We can, we'll turn back on our life and we'll say, you know, how was it for you, friend? And the answer will be, Surely, goodness and mercy followed me all the days of my life, and I have dwelt in the house of the Lord. God blesses his people, even in the wilderness. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that you would make it effective in your church, Lord. We want to be searched by you, sanctified this morning. Lord, we pray that you would build us up in our faith in Jesus this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.